All right, Ruth chapter one. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went up to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, Ephrates of Bethlehem and Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Amalekh, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Malon and Chilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return to the land of Moab. For she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons. Would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you. For the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. So Naomi returned and with her Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab and they came to Bethlehem. At the beginning of the barley harvest. 
And Father, we thank you for this word. Father, we pray that as we work our way through this passage, Lord, I I ask that you would help us to, to, to see the setting, that we would be there in the scene, that we would let our imaginations run a little bit, that we would feel the emotion and the pain and the sorrow and the despair, Lord, of the situation. Father, I pray that it would reveal itself, Lord, to the bleakness that they felt. Lord, we thank you for this powerful story, and we ask for your help now in Christ's good name. Amen. It's a, the more I've been lingering over this story for the last few weeks, I, I can barely read this without getting choked up. If you, if you place yourself in this story and then in a situation, it's a painful story. I don't think I realize. I mean, I, uh, this is a book I've never, like, this year, the books I've chosen, I've chosen books. I'm like, I don't really know much about this. I never preach on any of these. Let's, let's, let's look at them and, and let's grow. I, uh, as funny, I told somebody the other day, I'm like, yeah, these are the books we're going for. I'm like, man, you're like doing like a CrossFit workout with books of the Bible. This is like, this is like a little bit of everything. And uh, so I, I'm, I'm really excited. And so as we start with Ruth, we start with the very first phrase. And it begins with this. Now, it came about in the days when the judges governed. There's a few observations to make. Uh, the first is that there's, there's no telling who wrote this book. There's, there's a lot of speculation, but it's just that. Um, we, we know by the end of the book, it had to have been written after King David was around because he's named at the end of this. So we don't really know who wrote it. We do know when the story happened. And see, it came about now in the days when the judges governed. If we were to turn to the book previous, we would see there's a book in the Bible called Judges. If during the six weeks you want to get sort of a, a background um, of this era, this period, what was life like, read through Judges. And in Judges, you're going to discover some very crazy stories. If Judges was turned into a movie it would be at least rated r i mean there's some crazy i mean lefty kills fatty i mean a left-handed guy kills this fat guy to where his hand goes all the way through it's great i love the stories there it's like it's made for little boys and little boys at heart like it my wife is like this is just craziness i don't want to take all the time explaining judges to you because then i'd get i get way sidetracked with some of the cool stories probably offend some people but if you turn back, it should just be a page or two, or maybe even on your very page. But the very last verse of Judges sort of explains the setting during this time. The book of Judges ends with this. It says, now in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It was mayhem. It wasn't that they all agreed on what was right and what was wrong. It's like, I, what, what I think is right is what I think is right. What you think is right, that's what you think is right. That's great. Let's just live life, do whatever we want. And it was craziness. It's believed that Ruth took place during the setting of Gideon, the, the judge of Israel. So things weren't pleasant for Israel during this time. Now, during this era, this dispensation, meaning man's responsibility... We live under one dispensation. God's revealed more to us through the New Testament. But during this era, 
What, what they had was a dispensation of, hey, you live for God, you'll be blessed. You disobey God, you're going to be cursed. And so we see that God's hand was upon the nation of Israel because they had been rebelling and bucking against God this whole time. And we see the second part, that during the time that the judges governed, that there was a famine in the land. This land that we're talking about is Bethlehem. This is a beautiful story. This uh, uh, going to Israel, you know, going through Ruth. It's like, oh, I can't wait. You know, I, it hasn't even been a year since we've been to Israel as a church. But I'm already like, hey, are there volunteers for our next trip in two years, three years? <laughs> hey, 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 all right. We are. I have a, Anna's going to kill me. I don't have any dates lined up. <laughs> uh, side story. But when you go to Israel, like the thing that shocked me the first time I went over to Israel is when I read the Bible, I read these stories and I see linear, linearly like like here's this story. Then you move on and there's this story and then there's this story sort of like chronologically. Then you go to Israel and you realize like, wow, this is Bethlehem. This is where Ruth or Naomi was. Naomi becomes King David's great grandmother. And then King David in this very city, this is where he was tending his sheep. Fast forward through time, where was Jesus born? In Bethlehem. It's all layered upon each other. And so this land, Bethlehem, means something. House of bread. I love bread. My wife really loves bread. Growing up in Spain, uh, the other day, she, she's, she was talking about, I forget who was over, but she was talking, she's like, you just can't get good bread here. And I'm like, are you talking about Valley Center or like the United States? And she's like, both. In, in Spain, they make their bread daily. So she's been in this cooking kick, you know, like, and where she's found some Spanish recipe of how to make bread. And last night she made some. It's so good. Like, Right when it's fresh out of the oven and she's trying to slice it. She's like, it's too hot. I'm like, there's no such thing as bread that's too hot. I'll take it and I'll slice it up. Oh, it's so good. The burn marks all in my mouth from the bread. Oh. And so in this place called the the house of bread, there's famine. Can you imagine if the name of your town was like carne asada burrito? And yet there was no food like everywhere you went. It's like, where do you live? I live in Carney, Santa Brito. <laughs> Have you guys ever been hungry? When I was in high school, like I, I most of my life, I've never really truly been hungry. Like I've always been able to get food. I've had cravings. I could satisfy that craving with something. Even in the military, the SEAL teams are are very big into providing food for. It's not like the Rangers or different groups where they starve you and they make you on an empty belly. SEAL teams, you get fed every six hours. doesn't matter what you're going through because you need the calories. But when I was in high school, I got sent away to bad kids camp in Utah. They starved us for weeks. And I'll never forget, just be advised, there's some topics in this story. Some of you might, um, I'm going to tell this against my better judgment. So I'm starving. We have like a Ziploc bag of rice between like the eight of us bad kids that were there. We had to ration it. We knew we wouldn't get food for like three weeks. So you were like allowed like a tiny bit of rice to eat. And we're down in the beautiful like area of Utah, like the whole 
um, like this, the dunes, or it's this beautiful red. And we had our food sort of hidden in a cave, and we hear this like scurrying. And I, I like look in there, and I see mice eating our rice. And so we killed them, and we killed a couple of them, but we're so bored and we're starving, we're like, hey, man, let's make, hey, we're campfire. I bet if we got these things, throw them on the fire, we can make little finger puppets and have like a little show. Weird things happen when you're like starving and in survival. And so then we're making like, there's like three of us, and we're by the campfire going, hi, my name's Mickey, what's your name? And we'd gutted them, we threw their guts on the fire, and suddenly it was like, what is that smell? This is like Ruth Chris Steakhouse. Like, wait a minute. This mouth. And so then we're like digging the guts out of the fire pit. How do the poor people live? This is excellent. When you're starving, things get desperate. I don't know if it's because I'm from the Bay Area, like up in, you know, I was I, I was born in Monterey. I, 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 I went to elementary school in Salinas. And if you're from that part of, of the Central Valley on the coast, there's an author that everybody falls in love with, Steinbeck. Apparently, that love doesn't like go to other places. I learned when I married Anna, like I'm like, oh, I love the Grapes of Wrath. She's like, oh, I never read it. I'm like, well, let me read it to you. So I'm reading through the Grapes of Wrath. She's like, this is depressing. I'm like, what are you talking about? This is great literature and she's like are you kidding me you don't read any books and yet you love reading steinbeck of like mice and men cannery these are beautiful novels in my opinion and so i've been thinking about the grapes of wrath the famine in the land can you imagine what the people during this time were were going through like i I love the beauty of the grapes of wrath and and i imagine that people in bethlehem is they would plant seed, but no food would come up. We'll see that, that the food was a direct result of God's blessing or cursing, and yet no food was coming up. People are hungry. They're starving. They're asking, when are we going to feed the kids tonight? How are we going to survive? Some maybe murmured, hey, maybe, hey, uh, we'll see that in Moab that we hear that there's, that the economy is good over there. There's food. There's employment. Maybe we'll leave over there. Ah, but on the other side, we're Israelites. We're in the land. This this isn't Bethlehem. This is Israel. God has told us to come to this place. All of our promises are in this land. And so to leave would be to, 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 to neglect God. I think of Genesis. You know, for those of you that are like, doing the Bible through a year or kind of working your way through, you'll come, you'll come to the section that I refer to as Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Since we read this book, we started reading through the Bible, but not for dates, just for boxes. And so I could read today or I could not read today. I can pick up the Bible tomorrow and I can read. And all I have to do is check the box of where we are in the Bible. We came to the Joseph story and my wife loves Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. She's taken the girls to the play and so I come to this section and I'm going, oh, no, I, I knew I was in trouble when they start ta- naming the sons. And before I name the sons, my daughter is shouting out the names of these sons, crazy names. I'm like, how do you know these names? And she's like, well, I'm trying not to sing them to you, dad. And so that I come to various 
parts of the text and I read the story and then I say, okay, sing the song. And so they're singing the song. So we're singing our way through the story. And one of my favorite songs is the one that's set to like the French music. Those Canaan days and they're like, they're starving and, and then they eat a fly. I think that's why I like the part. And they're like, oh, we need food. We need to go down to Egypt. And this tent, what are we going to do? And so we're going to be introduced to a family. Within the story set during the time of Judges, we know there's a famine. And suddenly this, this, this picture of this family. And what I love about the story of Ruth, there's really nothing fascinating in this story. Be quite honest with you that over the last few months of sort of like reading through this book, kind of knowing that I sort of declared that I was going to teach, I'm like, eh, boring. They're hungry. They die. They go back. What's the big deal? Man, how am I going to come up? Like, I could teach this in an hour. It's going to take six hours at least. Not today. Don't worry. Just, <laughs> just over the course of time. <laughs> But, but, but what I love about this story is it shows that God is the God of the ordinary. That as we start this year, as you go about your day-to-day life, God's at the midst of what you're doing. You can either reject him or accept him or make decisions based on things that he wants or to walk from him. It all happens in the, the, the subtleness. And so we're introduced to this family. And a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and two sons. The name of this man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. Larry? Help me out. The name. There we go, of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered, they entered the land of Moab, and remain there. So, so what's the story? Who are the characters of the story? We're introduced to Elimelech. And, and there's names. We've already looked at Bethlehem, house of bread. These names all have significant meanings. Some commentaries make a big deal out of them. Some are like, that ah, just doesn't mean anything. But Elimelech, it means my God is king. Or God is king. It depends on how you translate it. It could go either way. So here you have this man whose name, every time you say, is Elimelech. And it's like, my God is king. And so here you have Elimelech in the promised land of Bethlehem, where many, many promises would come to be fulfilled. And he's going to make a decision that shows that his God really isn't his king. But we'll get into that. Then you have Naomi, which means sweetness. Or pleasant. Beautiful. Then you have these don't need, don't like, I'm expecting a son in March. These two names have not been in the running. <laughs> Malon and Chilion, which means sickly and dying. <laughs> and how does this story turn out? Well, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves. Then there's that word that I've been having a terrible time settling saying, now it's, my brain is seized up on it. But, but that simply is a, it's synonymous for Bethlehem. It, it, it could be used interchangeably. Then we get to this tale of Moab. 
now before we talk about Moab, if I can get somebody to, um, maybe if I can get Justin to turn off the lights. We'll turn off all the lights. We're going to look at some slideshow to orientate us. Just, yeah, thank you. Okay, so this is, can anybody identify this nation? Israel. Okay, so there's a little lake up here. What's this called? Sea of Galilee. There's a river that flows from the north to the south, Jordan. Then you have this big body of water down here. Dead Sea. What's unique about the Dead Sea? You can float. I don't know that. I've never floated in the Dead Sea. It's a little condition I have with my wife that I will not go in the Dead Sea until I can go with her. And so many of the people on our trip floated in the Dead Sea. The reason you float in the Dead Sea is because it's so high in salt. And salt is buoyant. You're more buoyant in the ocean than you are in your swimming pool. And in the Dead Sea, the concentration of salt is so high that you're super, super buoyant. And because of that salt in there, it kills everything. So you call it the Dead Sea. And so for those of you, um, well, I'm going to go, let's go to the next slide. So this is sort of a zoomed up picture of the Dead Sea. We see our story starts in Bethlehem, five miles north. There's Jerusalem right here. They're going to make this trek all the way around. It's a long, long trek. I, I, I really, I should have done the mileage, but I'm guessing it's 80 to 100 miles. You can see that that section on the bottom, that's 30 miles. So it's like, I don't know, we'll call that 30, 60, maybe 90 miles. All the way over here on the other side, we come to Moab. This region is Moab. So those of you that went to Israel, when we went to the Dead Sea, or if you go to Israel, when you go to the Dead Sea and stay, you'll stay right about here. This is now landlocked, this section today, because the, this Dead Sea is evaporating. There's still some salt beds down here. But you stay basically right here. And when you look across, you look across into modern-day um, Jordan, which was the area of Moab during that time. If you'll take me to the next slide. This is a picture looking from Jerusalem. It's kind of hard to see. It's a beautiful picture. If you turn around to the, the TV, if you guys are flexible enough to do that, you'll get a clearer picture. But so you see from the sea of, from the sea of, of Israel or the, the land of Israel looking across the Dead Sea, it's a long stretch. The picture really puts it into perspective. Then you have the mountain range between, range between Israel and what was what is Jordan today or uh, what was Moab? But these mountains are significant. This is a huge, huge, huge mountain range. Um, uh, please go back to the scriptures and turn on the lights. Thank you, Justin. Okay, so we see Moab. We see this land. For to travel from Bethlehem to Moab was a significant journey. Uh, the, not only the distance. But what do we know about Moab? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> and we teach the Bible. We, I'm going to do this as diplomatically as I can, but I, I need to cover some territory here. So Moab, if we were to, to study, where did the, the Moabites come from? We, we would go back to Genesis chapter 19, verses 30 through 38. You don't have to go there. We'd find a guy, Lot. Remember, Lot and his wife destruction well his daughters come up with a plan to get their dad drunk and then they each conceive a child one was named moab who became the the father of the moabites then you have ben amni who became the father of the ammonites if you read the scriptures god and his his people there was a huge 
tension between these groups of people. We're only going to focus on the, the, the Moabites because it's important to our text. If you would turn back towards the front of the Bible to, to Deuteronomy chapter 23. They kind of, see, we read, oh, they just went from, they just went from San Diego to like Oceanside. What's the big deal? It's a huge deal. So in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 3 through 6, we read this. You shall never seek their peace. Am I in the right? Deuteronomy 23. Three, oh, I was at the very three. No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Whoa. whoa, whoa. So, so you have church in Israel during this time. There's a Moabite and an Ammonite. They're in town. Hey, we want to go to church. Learn about your gods. Are we welcome? No. No, you're not allowed in here. None of their descendants, even to the 10th generation, shall ever enter the assembly. 10th generation? I'm the great, 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 great grandson of so-and-so. Sorry. You're not, none of you, you have Moabite blood. You are not allowed in the house of the Lord. Verse 3, no Ammonite or Moabite shall enter over. Um, verse 4, because they did not meet you with food and water on the way you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam. Remember that story, the talking donkey? Because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor from Pethor and Mesopotamia to curse you. Nevertheless, the Lord your God was not willing to listen to Balaam. But the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. You shall never seek their peace or their prosperity all your days. Ouch. I was going to stop there. And I may be opening up some. This seems very severe. And and if you turn this here, it's like, no, you're not welcome in our church. We're not praying for prosperity for you. We don't want any of this stuff. You rejected us as we were coming up through Egypt. You serve false gods. You're sexually like impure people. And that you continue to do things that detest the Lord. You're founded based on incest. And it paints a pretty bleak picture. And then this morning as I'm reading, I just kind of go on a little bit more. And I'm like, ah, look at verse 7. And I really have a point for this other than it's like, I don't know. It seems like that God's grace sort of pops out and it says, you shall not detest an Edomite for he is your brother. You shall not detest an Egyptian because you were an alien in his land. So I love this. Like there's this warning, but God says, don't detest him. And if on my first trip to Israel, the guy who was our tour guide, when he would talk about the, the, the Muslims, he would be real like, harsh towards him but then there was like sprinkled in it was grace he's like but there he'd only refer to them as his cousins he's like but there are cousins and so it's like huh interesting how you care for them in the midst of being firm but i'm way off subject here to turn back to ruth chapter one so they're excluded from worship if we were going to go to deuteronomy chapter three or Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3. I'm not going to go there. 
We also see that the people of Israel were forbidden to, to marry into Edomites. You should, they should never marry. Be, and the reason it's given is because if you marry an Edomite, you're going to be led astray from following God. And so there's firm, firm warning. And when I ponder the stories, I read, and a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, my God is king. And the name of his wife, Naomi, pleasant, sweetness. And the names of his two sons were sickly and dying of Bethlehem and Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. I notice at the first part, it says they went to sojourn there. You get the idea in their, in their conversation of wrestling. Ah, Elimelech, should we go? I don't know. I, God told us to remain in the land. This is where our promises are. He's warned us from going to that people. If we go there, there's no Jews. There's no promises of God. We are entering into the land of, of, of basically cursing. Bless you, but we need food. I love that it says, it starts with sojourn, like, okay, maybe we'll just go, we'll go for six weeks, we'll work really hard, we'll gather food, and then we'll come back. We'll just go in really quick, we'll get what we need, and then we'll come back. By the end of verse 3, it says, they remained there. They go, they stay, there's a lot of speculations. As I think about the stories, I think about our lives, and I think about the economy, and taxes, and burdens the the responsibility to provide for your own uh, combined with the the responsibility of of walking with god and honoring god i can't help in this story to see that that this man or this woman we don't know how the story went down but it seems that they neglected the spiritual implications for the sake of economic benefit. And we see this, I see this all the time in our nation. And I, you know, God can lead us different ways. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but, but we live in California. I can't tell you how many times I see people just up and we're leaving California, the taxes and the economy and we're going to, the sticks somewhere in a different state where it's better. And I'm not saying God doesn't move people. I'm not like, don't, don't get me wrong here. But a lot of times in these decisions, the, the, the economics, the benefits, the job, this, this life seems to be the driving force. I don't know. Maybe it's easier for me because I feel like God called me to Valley center, but I don't think that it's, I, I can make a biblical case for every Christian where you are. God has planted you there and he has you to be light and darkness and, and salt. I definitely don't see that God's called us to go make, uh, be hermits and make little communes. So we're isolated. We're supposed to be in this world, which I'm kind of making a case for them going to Moab in some respects. But, but, but they were told clearly by God, don't go there. Don't intermarry. Stay away from these people there's no promises of the protection of God here. And yet they say there's food, so we'll go. And we're going to see the tragedy of this story. The, the first blow happens here in verse 3. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. 
We know nothing of the story. We don't know how he died, what happened. We know that he's in Moab. Naomi sort of takes center stage at this point. She's now in a land of foreigners, false gods. Her people aren't there. Her husband's now died. What's she going to do? Well, she has hope because her two boys are still with her. She has her sons, but this is a painful story. So they lose dad. Mom has them. And in verse 4, we see they, the two sons, took for themselves Moabite women as wives. Ah. If we want to get real specific, the Bible was very clear to the Jewish people. You do not marry Moabites. I think the sons have responsibility here. But I also think that a decision that the parents made, hey, let's chase the economy. Let's go to this place for money, for food, for sustenance. They put their sons in this situation where they would be removed from their God, their people. The only women that they had to marry were Moabite women, something that God clearly forbid. And so we start seeing some some implications years down the road for choices. And all we have is choices. And as we go about this new year, recognize that one choice leads to another choice to another choice. And then you get 30, 40 years down the road and you end up somewhere and you say, how did I get here? My prayer is that we would make choices where the spiritual implications take priority. So they take Moabite women as wives, were introduced to these two ladies. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. And so the sons are married. I believe another 10 years goes by. Here's Naomi. She's lost her husband. She has her boys. Oh, there's in the midst of the sorrow and mourning, there's hope. My there's there's a wedding. I wonder about the wedding. What was the wedding like? For the Jewish ceremony, the wedding would be all about Yahweh, God, their provider, how, how he set this up. In Moab, it would not be that. The, the wedding would be focused around false gods, plural, lowercase, not singular, God. But then they're married. And as mother-in-laws do, a couple of years goes by, and I imagine even more so then than now. Oh, Ruth, you're sick? Are you expecting something? Is there, am I going to hear pitter-patter of a baby? No, Mom, I just, I ate some bad hummus. And I, I'm not feeling good. You know, there's hope, there's expectations. Her husband's passed, but now... Her two boys have these girls and maybe a child will come. But in verse five, tragedy number two strikes and we have no idea what happened. Then both Malan and Chilion also died. And the woman, that's Naomi, was bereft, meaning everything was taken. I, I had to search what bereft meant. I mean, it, everything's gone. She has nothing. She has her life. 
She does not have her husband. She has her has no sons. She has these two Moabite women that were her sons-in-law or daughters-in-law. There was nothing worse during this time than for your family name to go extinct. Her whole line just ended. There was no hope of her future. This is God's greatest curse that could be placed on her. Total sadness. And in this story, I try to imagine what did Ruth think? Husband's dead. Ten years later, both her sons are dead. Did she kind of pace back and forth and say, how did I get here? How did I end up here? We have these surreal moments. I'll never forget my 25th birthday. It was my first combat mission, and I was tasked with going out, and I was sitting off the coast of Iraq, Iran. Can't go into any more details than that, but I was in water, pitch blackness, and I was, I'll never forget putting the magazine into my MP5 and slamming it forward and having this thought of, I just put a real bullet in a real gun, and this is a real mission. And how in the world did I get myself into this situation? That decision happened many, many years before. And in that moment before we went out, I had all of these thoughts, remembering all those years of, of from the, hey, I'm going to join the Navy because they can't tell me what to do. Oh, oh. <laughs> Oh, the people that talked to 17-year-old Gunner, but 17-year-old Gunner was so arrogant and prideful who thought he knew everything. Apparently, they can tell you what to do in the SEAL teams. Surprise, surprise. I think about Ruth over the bodies of her two sons. And maybe she thought, I should have put my foot, I should have spoken up when Elimelech wanted to go. I knew we shouldn't go, or maybe she's thought, and I think it's almost the second one, that, that, that I shouldn't have been so hard on him to get more money, to get more food, to, to, to leave your God. I, I sense that she was the driving one, or at least she felt this one. If we were to go to verse 13, she says, for the hand of the Lord has gone against me in verse 13. And then in verse 21, she says, the Lord has witnessed against me And the Almighty has afflicted me. So from her perspective, everything that's happened was based on her choice. And I don't know if she was the one that was a driving force to to push her husband to a better economic situation, neglecting the spiritual condition of her family. Is this a consequence of God's punishment? A consequence of of her own choice? I don't know. I do know as Christians, we need to have our, uh, our doctrine of suffering in our mind. There are many groups, even today, that if you're a Christian, that you're suffering will certainly, like Job's friends. Where's the sin in your life? Because God only wants to bless you. Well, it's not always true. In God's case, Job was being cursed because of what a great godly man he was. And God was making his case through him. Only Job didn't know that. Often suffering in this life, we live in this fallen world, it it, it happens and God refines us through suffering. I I can't tell you how thankful I am for the suffering I've experienced that that came not as a result of anything I've done. Now, Peter gives the warning, 
Don't go suffering because of your stupidity and your ignorance. That's not the kind of suffering we're talking about. There is suffering. There are consequences for choices. God lays out a plan for us. He doesn't force us into it. We can say, no, me and my family is Joshua. We're going to serve the Lord. I don't care what you guys do. I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm going to make decisions that reap spiritual blessings for my family. Or you can say, you know what? I'm going to continue in this cycle of my family and generations and where I came from. And I don't care about this. And then you end up in a place down the road where you harvest the consequences of your poor choices. And I think this is what's happening to Naomi. This is a pitiful, pitiful, pitiful story. It's crying, like, what am I going to do? What was I thinking? I'm old. My life is wasted. It's almost gone. I think at this point, the one thing that she said is, well, I'm going to be obedient now and go back. I love what Charles Swindoll says. It's never too late to do the right thing. It's never too late. If you're alive, it's never too late to start living for God. doesn't matter where you came from in 2013 and before. What, what matters is how are you going to finish? I think back to this, this conversation in my mind that they had about going or not going. And it reminds me of when I wrestled with uh, my getting out of the Navy. I joined the Navy when I was 18, still in high school. It was the beginning of my senior year. I turned 18 in September. I got, there's an incident in first grade, but we don't need to talk about that right now. But they said I wasn't mature enough and I needed to hold me back for another year. So I was really old my senior year. So I went down, I enlisted in the Navy. At 18, the beginning of my senior year, I was in boot camp 15 days after graduation of high school. And then I spent the next 12 years in the military, met Jesus along the way, and then felt God calling me into the ministry. And I had four years there of when I did Bible college, when I was in the Navy still as an instructor, going to Bible college, preparing for the ministry. And when you're 12 years into the military, what you really are is eight years away from full retirement. And my dad's a financial advisor. And I'm like, I'm getting out. At eight years, I decided I was going to get out. I was going to ride the four years to let them pay for me to go to Bible college. And, and, and during that four years, there was this tug of war. Maybe I can just do reserves. Maybe you should do reserves. Don't give up all this time because of retirement and provision. And even people, seminary professors who had retired from the military were putting this pressure on me to kind of halfway go into the ministry. And I prayed and wrestled and stayed up at night terrified i never had a real job as a seal you get paid every two weeks whether you deserve it or not you don't get paid based on the work you do it's like somewhere in dc they somebody a computer so nobody clicks a button but a computer just says put money into gunner's account boom didn't matter what i did or didn't do i i could have been off i could have been working really hard i just got like my work had nothing to do with my paycheck and so here I was like 12 years as, a, as an adult saying, I'm going to the ministry. The ministry doesn't really work like that. I was terrified. So many people said, well, maybe you should do reserves. And I wrestled, I prayed. And over the course of the four years, what I sort of concluded as I got out and the decision needed to be made was I stay in the reserves or not. What I sense God say to me is, 
Do you trust me to take care of you? Do you trust me? If you don't trust me, stay in the reserves. That can be your insurance policy. Or if you trust me, you can go. And so basically when I said that, I'm like, and God called my bluff, it's like, that's exactly what's going on here. I can either step out in fear and trust you and not knowing what the future holds and just walk by faith or I can have my sort of my emergency parachute here that I can launch back in or I, I can, you know, get a little money on the side. I'm not saying this is bad. I'm speaking for myself, especially when Ben comes during a second message because he's staying in the reserves. It's a totally different situation. I'm not speaking against, I'm telling my story. But I was an active duty Navy SEAL in March of 2005 when I separated. If I stayed in the reserves over the last eight years, I wouldn't be here as your pastor. Navy SEALs during the last 10 years are recalled into combat. And when I did that retirement earlier this summer of my buddy who retired at 12 years, it was so weird for me to walk down there because I saw the other side of the coin. Had I done the reserve of where I would have been, I I couldn't have been here as a reserve SEAL. And this happens in life. And the point of all this is, is that we need to take stock. We need to evaluate decisions that we make. There's, there is the responsibility of providing for your family, making decisions. But so much more is, are the spiritual implications of your family, your own life. Choices add up. And so here she sat and she decides, I believe that I'm going to be obedient now and I'm going to head back. And in verse 6, she arose with her daughter, daughters-in-law that she might return to the land of Moab. For she had heard in the land of, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given food to them. There's this, God has blessed his people. I should have never left. I should, have, I should go back. I can be obedient now. During this time, if you had food, it was from God. If you didn't have food, something was happening. And there's no difference today. We have grocery stores and food is always available, but it's not that way everywhere in the world. So when you do your grocery shopping, when you're at Costco, when you're at Vons, when you're at Big Lot, wherever you are, wherever you shop, we need to be grateful people. Thank you, Lord, that I have this daily bread. Most of us have bread stocked up. Some of us are like hoarders where we're afraid of, you know, I don't want to... uh, where we're protecting for the worst case scenario. So we have like six months of water and food and all of this stuff. But what Jesus said is God will provide your daily bread. And when we go out daily, like, thank you, Lord, for this food. You provided breakfast for me today. I had leftover fresh bread and I was so thankful for it this morning. I'll probably have lunch. Definitely will have dinner. And I need to be thankful. We need to be thankful. She hears that God is blessing the people. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughter-in-laws with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Now they head back. Uh, our, our culture is sort of strange. I, you know, I took Dan and Kelly Kidder. They went to Seattle to visit her family for the holidays. I volunteered to, to take them to the airport and to pick them up. Uh, anytime they go to the airport, they're my... Dan is my backup plan for an emergency. Anything that happens from 10 p.m. to like 3 a.m., I know I can call him. He can come babysit, and I can go do whatever I need to do, like cut in the head. So when Anna and I had our date night in the emergency room for the cut in my head, 
It happened at 11 o'clock at night. Dan came over. He sat. So, so the way I kind of stack the deck for favors is I take him to the airport. Now, as I'm reading this story and thinking about Naomi leaving with her two daughter-in-laws, or daughters-in-law, this was customary. I don't know what your culture is at the airport. It seemed like the old day, you'd go to the airport, you'd park the car, you'd walk right to the gate, and you'd wait, you'd wait, they'd walk down, and you'd be like waving at the window. When you'd pick somebody up from the airport, you'd park your car, and, and you'd go in with your signs and say, welcome back, Daddy Kelly. When I dropped him off, it was like, we're here, get out. I don't even think I waved to them. It was like, thanks for the ride. Yeah, no problem. See you when you get back. Text me. Make sure the flight's on time. When I picked him up, I don't even think I got out of the car. You know how to do it. Hop in. Get you back to Valley Center. But in this day, if somebody was to leave, you would walk them. Hospitality. And so they walk out of town and they're going to come to the place where they're still close to Moab, but far enough to where the daughters aren't going to try to keep Naomi back in their land. And they reach the spot. And in verse 8, and Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, return each of you to your mother's house. This phrase is interesting, mother's house. I could only find this phrase three times in the whole Bible. There could be more. I didn't really go into it. But more normally you see father's house. But here she says, mother's house. And it's believed that this phrase deals with the idea of that, well, first off, Naomi's not their mom. They have their own moms. But, but even more so, the mother's house, this was sort of like the matchmaker. Go back to your mother's bedroom. Allow her to, you're young. Look what she goes on to say. May, may the Lord deal kindly with you who have dealt with the dead and with me, may the Lord grant that you find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Husband, your husbands are dead. So the idea is go back to your moms. You're young. Let your mom set you up with new husbands. Go on with your life. Have children. She says, you've dealt kindly with, with my sons who have died. You've dealt kindly with my husband who has died. You've dealt kindly with me. May the Lord be kind to you, this chesed. This grace, which, which speaks of loyalty born out of love and kindness towards those who a person is responsible. She's in chesed, this, word, this, this Hebrew word for, for this sort of grace, this kindness, is all through Ruth. The beauty of God's kindness towards us. She says, you've been kind to me. You've done more than enough. Your lives aren't over. Go back. Go back. Find rest in that house of her husband, verse 9. Then she, Naomi, kissed them, her two daughters, and they lifted their voices. And what do ladies do when they get together? They cry. And I don't, I got to make light of this a little bit. You know, Anna will get together and it's like, oh, how'd it go? It's like, oh, a few of us were crying. I was like, oh, you're, like, I just sort of seized up because I don't know how to handle crying. I feel like crying is something that you have to fix. If you're crying, that means there's something wrong. But apparently girls have a good cry. And I don't know, I, I don't, it's just really uncomfortable, dare, dangerous territory when girls start crying. I sort of freeze up and I try not to speak and I try to smile or not look frowny because I don't know if smiling will backfire or not. Like you just, I'm sure it's just me, but it gets like, well, they're crying. Is this a good cry? 
But it's a good cry. Then it's like, okay, we're good. I can just go on my, just enjoy your cry. But the worst thing is when it's a good, and you try to fix it. It's like, oh God, I'm getting, but they're crying. They're saying goodbye. They're weeping. And they both respond out of loyalty and love to their mother-in-law. They said, no, we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, return my daughters. Why Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? If I was, do I have sons right now? Am I pregnant with twins? That when they're born, then you could marry them? She, she continues it even more and say, go for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and bear sons, if I got married, we run to Vegas, get married, I get pregnant, two sons, they're finally born. Are you going to wait around until they're 18 or 15 to get married? No. Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. It's harder for me than for you. For the hand of the Lord has gone against it. This is terrible. I've made these horrible decisions. I've destroyed my life making these decisions, being disobedient. Don't you destroy your lives and follow after me? Turn, go back. You still have hope. I have none. Let me go back in my own shame and suffering. And they lifted their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So Orpah takes off. Ruth clings. And at this point, the mother-in-law sees that Orpah's gone. Ruth is going to be a a harder cookie to kind of kick off of her grip. And so she's going to basically go for the jugular vein in what she says, and we can't miss it. These next few verses aren't about marriage. They're used at weddings all the time, but we don't marry our mother-in-laws. Make jokes about our mother-in-laws. And I love my mother-in-law, but jokes of mother-in-laws are funny. And this is a whole, this is, this is, a, a young lady speaking to her mother-in-law. We, we, it's blessing when you have a mother-in-law that you can love as a mother. And, and look what Naomi says. This is her atomic bomb. This certainly will get Ruth out of here. Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people. They're not Naomi's people. These are Moabites. The Moabites and the, the Israelis did not like each other. For Ruth to follow her back to Israel, she was going to be an outcast. She would be looked down upon. She was a Moabite. There was disdain. They were told not even to allow her into their worship place. They were a terrible people and there was no love between these two groups. You go back to your people. I'm going back to my people. We're not related. She went back to her gods. Notice lowercase g, plural. Your people serve false gods. You go back to your gods. We have different gods. There's no sense. This is, this is mean. There are times when older ladies I've seen make hard decisions for the for the sake of trying to do the better thing for the younger person. This was not easy for Ruth. I mean, Naomi or Ruth. 
But suddenly, Naomi is not a sweet lady. She's now bitter. And she says, you go to your people, your gods. I'm going my own way. Get out of here. Your sister is still close enough that you can catch up with her. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, this is beautiful. This is, look at what Ruth says. Do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And the key of all of Ruth, because this is the crux, and your God, my God. These are false gods. I came to see through you who the true living God is. And I don't care what situation I'm going to go into. I'm following him. I don't care that I'm going to be an outcast in Israel. I don't care that I'll be looked down upon because I'm a Moabite. And she makes the spiritual decision that would reap fruit for her generations for years to come. That this becomes the great grandmother of King David. King David, who all of the promises come through, well, through Abraham to King David. When we get to Matthew, I can't wait at the end of the year. Through King David, the Messiah is promised. And Ruth, I haven't had a chance to, to count them up, but bear with me. She became the great, 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 maybe one more, great, maybe two, great, grandmother of the Messiah. Talk about redemption of your family line. That this lady said, I'm not following these people, these gods, my family, everything that I know. I'm going after the true God. I'm laying down everything and I'm following after you, my Lord. It's beautiful. To see this Moabite who they were forbidden to worship. That that when we look at Jesus' genealogy, that she's listed. And I believe that Rahab is connected to her in, in here in some weird way. But my genealogy, I ran out of time and we're getting close to the end here. Beautiful. <laughs> I love verse 18. Naomi quit. <laughs> when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. So they both went until they came to the house of bread. And the house of bread was the house of bread again. It was the harvest. There was wheat. There was crops. And when they come to Bethlehem, the whole city was in murmuring mode. I don't know how many years. We know at least 10, 15, 20 years had elapsed. Sweet Naomi, when she left, they had a, a, a softness about her, a beauty about her. 20 years away from the Lord. In this land that was rough and brutal upon her, she'd aged. They could tell similar with all the, all the ladies in town. See that lady that came to town today? Kind of looked like Naomi to me. That, that, that couldn't be Naomi. So-and-so's daughter, she's back. No. And, and Naomi sort of hears the murmuring. She'd become a bitter old lady. There's no, I mean, this is her words, not mine. You change your name from Naomi to to. Mara. Mara means bitter. 
lost my place thinking about that. I've got laughing here. Okay. Is this Naomi? Verse 19, verse 20. She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the almighty El Shaddai has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has witnessed against me and the almighty has afflicted me. My name is Mara. This is a broken woman coming in. And she's like, and I got my sister-in-law, this Moabite girl who won't go away. She's determined. There's just brokenness. And it ends with, so Naomi returned and with her Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law who returned from the land of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the harvest. So when I look at this, I'd encourage us this year, like, Difficult times will come. Good times, bad times, boring times. Every day we're faced with a series of decisions. And my prayer is that we as a people would make decisions based on following after the true God. Maybe things are tight. Maybe things are hard right now. Is it possible that God has placed you in this difficult situation to refine you? Is it possible you're in your difficult situation because you've been neglecting and being disobedient to God? I don't know. You can have the same situation. For me, looking in could be like the same. But behind the scenes, it could be total your disobedience that you're experiencing that. Or it could be that, you know what? God loves you and he's refining you through this. I do know that We need to, as we make decisions, I will follow after you, Lord. You know, we're giving books about reading through the Bible. You can do it through a year. I've already said I am not reading through the Bible in a year. I could finish in a year. What I want to do is I want to be in the word so that I'm growing. I want to make decisions. They may be harder decisions like, like Ruth. Her being obedient to God meant hard times are coming. She's going to a land where she's not going to be like. She's going to go to this field where she's essentially a beggar. Or we can be like a Elimelech. And say, you know what? I'm going to chase after the monetary. I'm going to chase after economics. Spiritual implications are going to be secondary. I don't know, but I pray that we would make the decisions that honor God this year. And Father, we do thank you for this beautiful story, the pain and the sorrow and to see out of these ashes, Lord, that beauty surfaces. We thank you, Lord, for the the picture of a story. We thank you that you speak to us through these. And we see on one character who... who sort of rebelled after you seeking to make decisions based on economics, prosperity, not trusting you in the midst of difficulty. We see the the bad fruit and the consequences, Lord, that came from those decisions. And then we look at this beautiful young Moabite woman, Ruth, who in the midst of her disaster, her pain, her sorrow, she recognized who you were and how you were moving in her life and she chose to follow you 
to enter into the storm of going to this land that was not her people, not her gods, but that she'd come to know you as Savior. And Lord, we see that through her life that the Messiah came. It's this beautiful story. So Father, I pray that you would help us, Lord, this year as we are faced with decisions. I pray that you would grow us in our relationship with you, that you would give us a passion for your word. Lord, help us to rightly see our sufferings. Give us wisdom, Lord, if we're in the midst of trials. Lord, help us to see that if our suffering is based on our own poor decisions of rebellion and disobedience to you, humble us, Lord, that we would make changes. And Lord, if we're suffering for the name of Christ, if we're suffering because we live in this fallen world, not because of anything that we've done, we pray that you would give us a perspective that sees that you're sovereign and that you're working through this. Lord, may we trust you through our our difficult times, through our good times. I pray that this would be a year of spiritual blessing for us, Lord. We desire to know you ever more closely. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.